Uh, this is Engineers at the Bar. This is a Las Vegas VM World edition. Today I'm drinking a Dragon Milk Stout and uh, a bunch of suitably reprobatable people have arrived to talk about being engineers in the lifestyle. So this is an Engineers at the Bar podcast. Let's see how it goes. Let's just go around the table and introduce yourselves. I don't care who you work for, just say who you are. Uh, this is Tommy McNicholas. I'm a solutions architect for a provider in uh, Southern California. Welcome board. DJ Spry, uh, Principal Engineer, Open Networking SDN at Dell. Hey, uh, Doug Yude, um, Cumulus Networks previously, um, mm. Systems Engineer, Thank Virtualization you. Architect, that kind of thing. Yeah, fantastic. So the purpose of engineers at the bar is to have that conversation that you have when you're an engineer at the bar. So talking about life and, and things like that. One of the things, so I'll kick off the discussion with talking a little bit about VMworld and what VMware is doing. So if you look at this conference, one of the things is I've been to a lot, I haven't been to VMworld before, this is my first one, right? Yeah, same here. Same. Same. <laughs> same. And it's big, right? There's a lot of people here, right? Just There's like, a lot of nerds walking around uh, Las but, Vegas, yeah. But, but not networking nerds. Like, I've no. always been doing networking, right? Everybody here is primarily into networking. So it's, a, it's an odd sort of a crowd. It's not, to me, it's like, they don't look like networking people. <laughs> <laughs> what does a networking person look like then? Well, indeed. <laughs> There's a certain sort of stink, you know? <laughs> a, a, some sort of miasma that Genesic comes with the top. <laughs> that comes with the top. But it does, um, and sort of you look at all the sessions and it's all very sort of, I, I just, I get a sort of a, you know, cognitive disorder that I'm not quite in my space or something like that. I don't know what you think. Yeah, yeah how do you use some backup widget in software-defined data center and whatever? Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that sort yeah. of thing. And all that sort of stuff. It's just odd because you know, I'm used to coming here and doing networking conferences like the various, you know, like interop and so forth, and just very different sort of a crowd. And it just sort of uh, struck me as like, oh, you know, a bit of a wake-up call that there's, you forget there's other parts of IT out there in the world. Uh -huh. so, well, except, I mean, except for switching, uh, networking is, has been relatively sm a small part of VMware's stack up yep. until recently. So, like, when I was on the team, my old employer, uh, I was a breath of fresh life into the virtualization team because I had some measure of a networking background. And, like, I was the only guy in UCS, on the UCS team, who could go in and look at the fabric interconnects, as an example. Yeah. Right? No one else who was managing VMware in our team could do that. They are like, <laughs> how do you know how to do that? I'm like, well, <laughs> I've managed a 5K before. Like, that's how I know how to do it. Well, the thing, I think one of the things about networking is that over the last... Over the last... I wrote an article about this, which we'll publish in the newsletter next week. But networking actually isn't that hard. Like, n n no part of IT infrastructure is actually all that hard. If you can go and do a, a three weeks or a four weeks of training courses and you're suddenly a Windows professional, or a CCNP is, like, what, 300 hours? That's less than a vocational course for a carpenter, right? Carpenters do, like if you're a tradesman, you actually spend six weeks out of every year during your apprenticeship at technical college. Now, admittedly, there's a bit of a, you know, there's a motivation and a, a, a maybe people who get into technology are a little bit more mentally progressive or, you know, uh, driven to be smart and, and well-intentioned. But at the end of the day, if you can just do three or four weeks of training and be called a, a certified professional ready to operate a million dollar infrastructure. I'm not 100% sure that networking is all that complicated. I, I could see that. I, I can also see, it's, it seems like a lot of the people I meet, there, there's like two, two groups of guys. Ones who came in through a very formally trained route, hmm. and then other guys, maybe they're from another era, but they kind of fell into it. They might not have computer science backgrounds or any knowledge of programming or anything like that. And I'm like, I find myself like in the middle of those two groups. So, you know, I'm, I, I, it takes a lot of effort for me to learn something. I think so, one of the things I've kind of noticed, uh, you know, being in America a little bit now and previously being in Australia, is like it, everything's very much specialized here, right? Like people are mm. a network administrator, whereas that's not quite so common like in smaller markets, right? Like back in Australia, a lot, a lot of people are generalists. Um, you know, right from the beginning, you know, you're, you're the IT guy at a 50-person company. You do everything. You know how to manage the printer. You know how to configure a Cisco switch. You know, and you can go figure out what mouse to, mouse to go buy at the equivalent of Best Buy. You know, like you do everything. So I don't know. It's just a different world, I think, here with the separation of 
church and state. I had a coworker bring in his son, recent college graduate, the other day, and he was asking me, "Oh, what sh- what should I be learning? I, I want to get in- into IT." And he, you know, he comes into a VAR to ask me this question. And I'm like, "Well, what did you do?" And he's like, "Well, I got a computer science degree." And I was like, "You want to learn what? Fiber channel storage?" <laughs> what, what? Oh God, I hope not. <laughs> so I said to him, "I was like, so do you, you know object-oriented programming?" He's like, "Yeah." I was like, "Okay, make that your focus." Yeah. And then go learn some networking story. Pick one, yeah. great. But you know, a lot of a lot of those fields are dying for people who actually have a true CS background and a developer's mindset. So I started off an engineering degree, mm-hmm. and I got three years in. I had to. I dropped out for various personal reasons. My foundation is still things like RF theory. You know, doing physics, radiation physics, and doing digital electronics and transformer theory to be able to you know design transformers so my gro- grip on the fundamentals of technology is a bit more solid and i think a lot of people don't get that like when you go and do m- vendor training which is the the route you know you, you pick somebody up and then if they don't know anything you send them on some vendor training and then they go and learn how to you know run a proxy server or a firewall but a lot of the vendor training doesn't teach you stateful protocols or packetized protocols versus you know TDM or any of those sorts of things and somebody has to invest a, they never get taught the fundamentals and you, know, you often wonder if IT infrastructure lacks because that doesn't exist you know I actually came in through a very similar route as well I did uh, you know electronic and electrical systems engineering to start with mm. and I found like you know knowing how OFDM works yes. like to a detailed level yeah. and like you say like ACDC power supplies the math involved in some of that yeah. it's it's fun how some of some of those kind of theories actually do still make their way up the stack um, but yeah having that kind of low-level knowledge is uh, yeah. sometimes useful I, I can tell you I'm forever grateful I was gonna be a music teacher and my <laughs> my I dropped out of college and I ended up getting a job doing DSL tech support in the heyday and uh, the the outsourcer I was working for taught us how ADSL worked like yeah. how yeah. it worked and how to actually troubleshoot it yeah. there was no remote desktop you had to ask grandma what was happening and what lights <laughs> yeah. were blinking over the phone yeah. and learning to troubleshoot was like the best skill I ever learned like how to shoot every layer yeah you had to that know was what phenomenal you're about. and I've applied that over and over again I tell people that yeah I came up through the completely different realm so I started in the military so they did a very similar thing it was very much you start like this is a can and then it goes and this is and this is how you make sodas and it starts at a very low level but it's very focused around operational side of the house to keep mission running and troubleshooting so sometimes yeah. it's a it's a it's a very different experience, I think, than the elite, you know, yeah. the academia side well, of the house. I want to go back to what you said, which was in Australia, you grow, you do a bit of everything, yeah, right. And you come to America, and where, and I've worked with American companies, and you're the switch guy, and there's another yeah. person who's the router guy because the networks are that much larger. But it's not even that. You're yeah. the Juniper switch guy, yeah. you know, like, yeah, yeah. and you know. It's uh, you know it's just interesting like yeah. say, I'm 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 used to doing a little bit of everything. Yeah, I, I got the same thing because I was installing Win- Novell Netware one oh. That was at day. my high school yeah. when I was going through high school. <laughs> yeah, and then you know I used to do Windows and I was in the Windows NT fast track when it first shipped, the three oh kind of thing. You know, uh, and then it was only much much later I got into networking and became like a networking professional. It was a wholly different game. I, like I, I decided I didn't actually, uh, I don't know, like networking when I first did it. So like I did, I did my degree and did all my networking, you know, internet networking, security, all that kind of stuff. And then straight away, my first job was a was a sysadmin role at a university, yeah. basically. So. So are you in the deep end? Yeah. <laughs> Sink or swim. Yeah. Actually, they probably had their foot on your head as well. Yeah, it was something <laughs> like that. Yeah. But it's good fun. And then, uh, yeah. you know, and then as it turns out, oh, we need a network refresh. Who can possibly do that? Well, yeah. okay. I know something about that. Yeah. And, so uh, you got volunteered. Yeah. <laughs> and off you went. And that's pretty much where you get yeah, into and then it. figure it out after not touching it for a couple I of years. Cho- I chose networking because um, nobody else was doing it. And it seemed like it just made sense to me. For some reason, it resonated. I don't know. What, what got you into networking? 
So, uh, in the military, they started me off as doing, like, DMS, Nortel switches, large. Oh. I was like, oh, this is kind of not very fun. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it's sort of a thing where Spring I got... Relay yeah, I got, and I got put into a unit where or it, where we did a little bit of everything. We were in charge of... We did the SATCOM. We did, you know, IDNXs. We did the network routing, switching. You know, we did everything. And I just sort of uh, gravitated to the networking side of the house. I, I, I find it a bit... There was, a, there was a lot more entertainment value for me there. Yeah. yeah so I, I liked it. I also liked the fact that, that everything was everywhere. Like, it, it was all over the country, and it was like, whatever you did, you, you, you couldn't go and... When you put a router down in, like, central Queensland, like, I was putting networks in Australia, and Australia's a, the same physical size as the USA. So that router is, like, 2,000 miles, 4,000 miles away, and you're like sitting there configuring it hoping like heck you don't mess it up because it's you're going to be screwed up you don't reorder your access list you get a 60 millisecond plus round trip time right <laughs> 60 gee that was a bad that was a good day Back in the days of frame relay, 64K frame relay. Yeah, okay. Now yeah. you have, like, yeah, yeah, if you have a direct path from Sydney to Perth, which there are available, yeah. about 60 milliseconds or thereabouts. Yes. And we used to run NetBIOS over the top, bridging protocols. <laughs> <laughs> so broadcast from head office would go right the way out. And, and yet not all the matches changed with L2 spread across, you know, yeah. uh, VMware clusters, right? Like, it's still... State of the art. I, I, I remember looking, doing packet captures on WAN links that were 20% um, of the bandwidth was broadcast from uh, IPX, SPX, NetBuoy, Net, NetBIOS over NetBuoy, and then you'd be seeing some TCP broadcast as well because it'd be bridged out. They wouldn't be routed at the TCP layer, just be bridged all the way across. So you'd see all of this stuff just going. It's just it was was the way it was, and if you had Apple Talk, it got much much worse really quickly. <laughs> like, because the way that they did system discovery or service discovery in the network, like I'm a printer, whether it was Apple Talk or IPX, SPX or NetBIOS, was it used to broadcast? And if those broadcasts weren't there, then the desktop didn't know that the printer existed, and the service wasn't announced. There was no DNS. So it, it really was a different. So you think about DNS now, and it's really a service database. It's not a very good one compared to what we used to have, but that's what it was. You used to be able to do a WINS lookup and say, I want to connect, you know, give me a list of all the printers in my NetBIOS domain, and you could get a list of all the nodes that had printers by just searching on list of printers in the WINS. Yeah, which I remember. Is, yep. Yeah. And you think, why don't we have that for DNS? So, <laughs> uh, you know. But we don't, because DNS wasn't designed to do that. It was designed differently back in a, you know, when it was sort of thing. Well, static assignment by default, right? For more, more or less, right? You, you've got a, a database of assignments, and that's what it is. So it's not. There's no real dynamic discovery in it. Yeah, well, TCP, well, IP, TCP, IP, UDP, IP was very complicated compared to SPX and NetBIOS at the time. It was only much later that we got to the point where. IP was easy, <laughs> like, you know, subnet masks and whereas IPX, SPX and that was all, you know, easily configured as a networking thing. So you're working with Cumulus now. Do you write code or you just fix code, fix problems with customers, design I customers? touch very little code, to be <laughs> yeah. perfectly honest. Uh, I can write the occasional Python script. I mm. know Ansible reasonably well. Ginger to YAML, that kind of stuff, but basic scripting languages for the most yeah. part. Um, so I use the tools more so than write them. What about you? So DJ, you're the same? Pardon? Are you the same? You write, you hack uh, code together, or you? Very, very little. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm more of. Um, I don't know, almost like an, an evangelist, you know, trying to plot roadmaps, business development, that sort of thing. Yeah. So you're more in the product management side. Exactly, yeah, I'm in the product group side. Right. So trying to figure out, a lot of my role is going to, listening to the engineers, listening to the people, what their pain parts are, and trying to figure out, you know, what tools, techniques that is that can drive our roadmap to address, you know, what the pain points are of the customers, right? So this is open networking. Correct. Uh, right, yeah. so that's the... Dell, uh, Cumulus, Big yep. Switch, yep. Pluribus, um, IPI, IP Fusion, those types of people, yep. and they all come and put their operating systems on your hardware. So you're juggling a lot of variables there. 
Yeah, and now, you know, with uh, the acquisition very near, you know, NSX is now part of that. Call it falls under that. Uh, that purview? So it does, yes. So, what, not NSX as an operating system, but NSX talking to those operating systems? So NSX is, is like our product group is SDN or open networking. It's all going to fall underneath that same. Right. Like, you know, whatever the customer needs for the most part, which way we can address it. Yeah. I can't imagine, like, juggling all those variables. Like, that must <laughs> it's, uh, it's very challenging, yeah. uh, to be quite honest. Like, in terms of relationships, like, all those vendors competing to put, the, you know... Like, it's pretty, we have uh, many conversations about this kind of thing all the time, yeah. so, yeah. Because Dell's selling the hardware, and it doesn't really care which operating system goes out the door. Um, but, I mean, our customers really keen on that model. Like, I get a lot of people saying, I don't want disaggregated opera, I want one vendor, one throat to choke, and then buying the two. I mean, what are, what's that life like for customers? Uh, so I, I definitely think that there are two different customers. I mean, for, I mean, especially within Dell. I mean, so I worked at Juniper Networks before that and, and a bar before that. And the same, Juniper's customer base is, is quite different, right? It's a much more SMB-type market. Mm. Uh, and for a vast majority of the customers, I think that they're interested in it. But at the end of the day, they're like, uh, you know, I can just, you know, I don't know what real value it's providing me that I can't do today with my Cisco gear or OS 9 already. Like, what what is it providing me? But then there are the other customers I think are a bit more savvy, being able to move into more, you know, infrastructure as a, infrastructure as code or SDN API programmability. I think that not being beholden to, you know, any particular hardware vendor, more yeah. along the lines of what NSX is pitching about agnostic hardware. It, it, yeah. it does resonate with them, but it's a very difficult. Um, but do a lot of customers buy it? Like, I know that. I get conflicting messages. Like, you hear a lot from the early adopters. They speak out loudly and, you know, they talk about their early adoption stories and say, oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And, you, and then all of a sudden you find that there's the silent majority just doing the same thing as they were doing 20 years ago. And nothing's changed and nothing's going to change. And damn it, stop stop annoying me. Damn it. <laughs> I'm not saying we don't have those customers. We have a fair number of those customers. Yeah. But I will say that over the last, especially over the last six months, the interest from more... It kicked the tires to actual real perfect concepts has certainly pissed up, you know, picked up, and it's and it's it's not just what I would consider web tech or the MSDCs. Yeah. I mean, it's it's actually, you know, two rack customers, hosting companies, educational cu customers. I mean, there's certainly a lot. They're they're moving more beyond just inquisitive questions and like, you know, re requests for capabilities. How many people are frightened of? Um, the one I always get is fear, frightened of tech support. If something doesn't work, who's, who's you know, does, do you, do we really have that many problems running someone else's, like, like, because x86 servers, we put Windows and Linux on yeah, so anybody's servers and nobody cares, right? Because it just runs. So I think, like, one of the things, like, you, you actually look at some of the hardware, like, in these switches, you know, they don't, they haven't had the same sort of standardization as what, like, X white box yeah. x86 servers or, you know, desktops had, right? Mm. So, you know, there's been a lot of kind of movements to try and standardize that, you know, OCP, you know, Open Compute Program, you know, ONI helps, helps has some level of certification in it. Um, we did another thing, like adding uh, ACPI kind of extensions to, like, map out programmatically the board. Yep. So you can actually do, like, discovery of what all the different temperature sensors are and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, like, all of that kind of stuff is relatively, like, it's not quite mature, right? Like, yes. not everyone's taken that on board. It takes time. It takes time for everyone to get on and board with that. It takes time for that to, for that, for the word to get out. Yeah, I mean, you know, it doesn't, like, I mean, knowing it, that you can suddenly, like, there's a thing called a Redfish specification, which Intel's oh, yeah. promoting, IPI, which yeah. is the successor to API, ACPI and DMTF, which is theoretically, you know, is built on Yang models, self-defining Yang models and sure. all that sort of stuff. And, um... Really, it should be um, something like that, where you make a query and it just tells you, I'm running, you know, chipset, you know, I mean, Linux is, you know, X3 chipset. I'm running this power supply with these temperature sensors, sure. and here's how you, here's my Yang model for querying those. Boom. And that's, I mean, I mean, I don't, I'm not really too concerned about what the actual model is, but there needs needs to be some sort of system to do that, right? Like mm -hmm. some sort of policy that it's, you know, that if you do it in this way, you know, yeah. stuff will just work. Um, and th that just hasn't existed in the networking world for a while. It's been there forever on the on the x86 side of the house, or even yeah. even PowerPC and stuff have similar kind of stuff uh, mechanisms around that. Yeah. But x86 probably the most advanced. 
Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, but the funny thing is, like a lot of those kind of back end, you know, services, protocols, and all, and whatnot, nobody really cares about, right? People aren't voting with their wallet to make sure that it's a APD or Yang compliant switch. You know, they don't. Yeah. They don't care. I don't think. Well, I don't think this again comes back to one of my my favorite beefs, which is um, networking. People really don't know enough about things to know what they're buying. So you, you try and value, say to them, you should really be looking for a switch that has, you know, self-describing Yang models in the API. And they just go, uh, what? <laughs> they might ask, why is that better? Yeah. They don't know. But they, they, you got to tell them. But a lot of the times you just sit there and go, I, I can't, like, I need a white paper that because I don't want to look stupid. Like, a lot of people just won't say, I don't know what that is, and ask questions. And they really should, because everybody wants to help you, right? I, I think, yeah. you know, you want, it, you want the chance to say, this is why it's important. You want, as, like, as a vendor, like, you guys, you're a customer, you two guys are vendors. As vendors, you are actually more than happy to give them that information. Right. right? You want them to know, because... Sure. Yeah. Why not? Absolutely. And, and they just have to put in the time and effort to read the stuff or learn the stuff. I, I find the challenge is just too much... I mean, fragmentation. I mean, there's just too many options. That's a problem. There's just too many options. And they it, it ends up being that they they don't know who to dance with. It's ultimately the problem. And it just stalls out, right? Well, a lot of also, time. Which brings me to the problem of trust. I Vendors have earned a, a substantial position of distrust. Too much sales, too much marketing, not enough delivery. Um, you know, and you know, overdoing the sales and overdoing the promising and not delivering and you know, scaling back tech support when the profit margins aren't right for the current quarter or, you know, has left a lot of cynicism and mistrust at the customer level. And I'm not, you know, so for those customers who, like, don't know, but there's also a lot of customers who just distrust everything that the vendors say because they lie, <laughs> if you know it. Like, seriously. And it's not like they're actually deliberately... Well, sometimes they are deliberately lying. There are sales grunts who just flat-out lie. Um, I'll never forget the day about 15 years ago when the salesman stood up in front of the customer and said, yes, your 3Com NetBuilder 2 module will work perfectly fine in your Bay Networks 5000 chassis. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's like, oh, you know. Um, but, you know, a lot of the vendors just, you know, overemphasize or... Um, in particular, like um, there are companies who have competitive products divisions, and they their whole job is to produce documentation, which shows competitors' products in the worst possible light. Right. Yeah. And it's often just outright dishonest what they write into. If you tested right? it at this hour of the day under a certain light condition with yeah. this one little nerd knob flip, yeah. everything crumbles, and then they it's, paint it to yeah. yeah. I, I did a test on this switch using 402 byte packets, and it performed horribly badly. Yeah. You know, so you publish a white paper which said performance is bad. Star, 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 star. <laughs> footnote uh, at 402 byte packets only. Con contact <laughs> us for details. Yeah, that's right. You know, I just and um, vendors sort of have earned a lot of distrust or um, stuff like that. And I, I and yet they, you know, that just doesn't. I don't know how to repair that because sales matter. You have to close the deal. You have to win the deal. Uh, profit margin has to be earned at this quarter. I have to hit my numbers. You know, if I'm a sales grunt, I have to hit those numbers or I lose my job. And lying and just dishonesty just is promoted in that environment. But I don't know how to answer that, right? I, I just, where's the alternative? It I mean, it depends on the market you're going after as well, right? Like, if you've got a, a fairly niche play, then, um, you know, being really credible about your qualification process is, uh, is actually is pretty important because it saves you a lot of, like, you and the company a lot of time, effort, and money in the long run as well, right? But not everyone practices that kind of, you know, rigor, I guess. So... Yeah, I, mm. I, I always think of trust as a higher order thing, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it takes time, and it's just—it's not an intrinsic thing, you know, that that someone has. So it's—it's it, going to take time. It's going to take proving proving that that's there. When I mean, yeah. things are always going to break. It's always going to break. So when things yeah. do hit the fan, you know that you're there for them. And how do you deal with that issue and the resolve? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I deal with that. That's one of my biggest things. You thing. might be there for them, but you might leave. 
right. or the people who sit behind you aren't there for them, right? Or the tech support has just been de-staffed, right? There's been an exodus of people from the tech support. So rather than rush to replace them, they're just holding fire to cut corners for a few months to boost the bottom line before they, you know, taking their time or maybe even like there's not enough executives. So hiring people is not a high priority because there's not enough bandwidth in the executive team to do the interviewing and analyzing. You know, there's so many. So big companies, you know, one of my pet theories is that big companies are inherently stupid. Right? They're just inherently dumb. Not because they're dumb, but because all of the pieces have to... They're have big to, ships. Yeah, they're big ships. And they go in one direction, and if you want to turn them around... Or, it takes a while. It takes a long time. And, but it also means that, you know, one stupid executive in the middle of the gear chain, and the whole gear chain is stupid. Because everything's joined together. And if you've got one person, you know, some... And big companies accumulate these people who are frightened of the real world. They don't quit. They just stay in big companies because safe. <laughs> you know, it's safe to work for big company. Yeah. Mummy and Daddy taught me to work for Big Co. And Big Co gives me my health care and keeps me safe. And, and I'll always have a job if I do. And if I love the company, the company will love me back, which is complete bollocks. Yeah, and then obviously uh, <laughs> government and education is even further down that spectrum, right? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> if we yeah. want to go down that rabbit hole, rabbit hole, I could talk for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we see some of the academia wants seven years of support up front. Yes. I work I'm for like, a customer who does that, yes. Uh, it's like seven years. But that made sense back in the day. But it's going to take them a long time to change their funding models for IT. Because, you know, seven years is what makes sense for their business, yeah. Yeah, and then seven years in this industry is a, I mean, NSX wasn't even a thing 40 years ago. Well, the interesting part was, if you look at the difference between, say, if I look at the difference in the industry between 1986 and 2006, zero change. Nothing changed. Like, x86s got faster, networking got faster, hard drives got bigger, storage arrays got bigger, and marginally faster, but, you know, From 2006 to 2012, virtualization came along, but networking didn't change, storage didn't change, nothing. So really, it's only been the fact that a seven-year life cycle has been perfectly acceptable until about 2013, where all of a sudden we're seeing, like, this is my, you know, argue with me by all means, right? But there's an inflection point in 2013 where software-defined network, you know, turning firewalls from physical into virtual, um, virtualized machines, DRS, VDS, you know, the virtual distributed switching functions, and all of a sudden OpenStack and Kubernetes and Docker, like in 2016, containers, just, you know, the fundamental shifts in the way we look at network, like, I look at a network in a data center now and I go like, I could put half a dozen, a dozen switches in a data center and never ever have to touch them again. I don't need to orchestrate the hardware because, um, I did a customer network, put in a leaf spine. You know what we did on every switch? Configured 50 VLANs and 50 subnets on every switch and never ever touched it after that. The only time we ever configured the switches was to put a VLAN on a port. So we pre-automated the entire network. We didn't need some sort of hardware orchestration tool, no Ansible, no Puppet, no ACI, no blah, 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 because everything was pre-configured. And for most enterprises, I don't think you need more than that. Tell me, what do you think? Uh, yeah, well, we did. We did a, a large abstraction effort for, for with NSX, and uh, well, you mentioned fear earlier. And one of the first things that came out when we started rolling in production was, all right, when we go to troubleshoot this thing, what kind of person is needed to debug an, an, an overlay packet? And at the time it was me. Yeah. And the very first issue we had was uh, an edge gateway silently dropping RPC traffic. Right. Silently. <laughs> Just vanished Fantastic. in the middle of the flow. Yeah. Right? And how do you debug that? And I was working with some guys with some ne- Nexus experience. And I was on the virtualization team. And it came to me because I have some measure of networking background. And mm. I'm like, what do we do? And I felt a little embarrassed that you know it was right there on the syslog flow. And it took me a day to find it, but at the same time, it, it really woke us up that the type of person who needs to be like, you're, you can't expect a guy who's been debugging NXOS to log into a vSphere host and start packet capturing and know how all the layers stitch together. I disagree. I think you should. Well, maybe we for should. Me, so that for was, me, that's, that's absolutely right. one of my personal successes is I've always, you know, I was installing... Uh, 
uh, vCenter and v ESX hosts in 2006. And I, no, I haven't done it full-time. I've never been a full-time professional. I've been just doing it for years and years and years. Um, but enough to know that, you know, this is what a storage array looks like. This is what things are. This is how it works. Just getting on with stuff, right? Not... Um, I couldn't imagine being a network professional and not understanding those things. Like installing Novell Netware, installing Windows NT, installing, you know, you, you have to be able to do that. Oh, Otherwise, I, you don't know what your network's doing. Surely, right? Surely. I, I did have to make the point in the middle of, you know, figuring this all out for that for that company was, you know, as the virtualization team, I own the first five hops of the network. Why doesn't the network team care about yeah. learning these first five hops before they even see a packet? And so well, I had to push pretty hard to, to bring them my direction. And it was kind of surprising to me. So. Well, the thing, yeah, well, I, you know, the network itself is, there's no visibility. So if you're a networking person, you've got no idea what your network's doing except some sort of natural intuition built up over years of pain, right? It's not like, and that's, that's why I, I keep talking about it. I think 2017, if there's two things for 2017 that we're going to see, it's going to be this visibility, telemetry, you know, apps like, yep. you know, Tetration, Clouds, Aristos Telemetry, uh, what we're seeing with companies like Anuda and Abstra with their intent-driven configuration. They actually expose all the configuration of the network in one place. Yeah, so there was an acquisition uh, VMware made like a few months ago called Arkin as well. Yeah. That's much the same sort of thing. Well, not so much intent-driven um, yeah. configuration or anything, but it's you're getting more data out of the network for those overlay packets and then pushing them into the same sort of uh, you know, dashboard and whatnot, right? The session I was just in talked a lot about the ARC when yeah. it, ARC and acquisition. That visibility is just the whole, that's all the next wave of technology. Yeah, I think we, we've had a few customers test driving that behind the scenes with uh, the, the NSX business unit and yeah. they've been, the, the data they've been getting from their from the data center is just amazing. Yeah. Like, I, you don't need to capture it. Uh, 20 way. to 1 ratio, north-south to east-west traffic and okay, they, so they have no idea. Let me ask oh, you really? this. Um, that's shocking. Yeah, so let me ask you this. A lot, of com a lot of people would say you have to do that in hardware. You have to do packet capture. So you look at companies like Big Switch and Gigamon and ACI, they can do hardware capture using the switches themselves. Is that necessary? Is Arkin giving you enough data so you don't need to do that? Or would there be an advantage to doing that? Oh, I believe Arkin's doing it at the distributed switch, uh, just sending NetFlow from VMware's distributed switch to a collector that's kind of integrated with it. And uh, it's plenty of data, like for, for at least the general purpose of what, what's talking to what in the network. Yeah. Do you think um, like, I mean, I was having this conversation a little bit, like I think earlier this morning actually, was like, if you have all the TCP flow information from every host talking to every host on a given network, why do you need anything out of the switching layer at all? Because if you have, you know, if you have, if you analyze a set of flows and you see that there's, you know, that 50 of them are having a problem, look for, you know, where those 50 flows possibly intersect and you probably found your problem. Yeah. Like, so I think like that's kind of the, you know, the Arkin kind of model and I, I haven't actually played with it so I, don't, I can't really claim any, any sort of intelligence around it. But, um, you know, I think like a lot of large companies, that's the way they're doing things. It's not so much getting flow-based information and whatnot out of the hardware, like the switching hardware and along the path. It's doing everything at the edge. Yeah, I think and the beauty of Arkin is it lives so close to the workload and so close to the compute. There's yeah. just much more tangible data and metadata that you can extract from what Arkin is delivering versus what you can do on the network. But it's also picking up metadata out of vCenter, right. we realize, right? Exactly. So it knows server name and you know how much CPU is burning on the the under, underlying hardware and the hypervisor and the and because it's and now VMware so ESX actually has visibility into the apps that are running on the operating system, so it's not like it's the metadata. Right. That to get makes that and the network world would probably require like agents on everything feeding back. I think yeah. it's something similar to like what Tetration well, is trying to do. is an agent. Like a, a vSwitch is an agent. It's not not an agent. It's an agent, right? Because it's inside the hypervisor. So the same thing works on KVM, whether you're running, 
you know, when you're running that virtual switch, whether it's Open vSwitch or eBPF or VPP, VFDIO, or you know any of the half a dozen different virtual switches that seem to exist for Linux these days, you've got access to the data from the operating system, but you can also start to query APIs for the VM orchestration tools that you're using above. So if you're using Kubernetes or you're using OpenStack or Mesosphere or whatever, all of a sudden there's a bunch of metadata around what the servers are, and that's never been there before. You could never talk to the Windows uh, you know, SCVMM and start pulling data out of that because their API was so crap, right? Microsoft APIs are always rubbish. But, um, you know, you, you just haven't had that before. So you've never been able to correlate the metadata to the flow and start... And that's where Arkin gets a win now because if it becomes part of, well, NSX, I guess... Did the NSX be you buy it? So it, it's its own platform now. It's it's uh, it, they've rebranded it in its yeah. own it's its own subscription now. Oh, like it's, it's like it's inside. Network inside. Yeah. Just yeah, like login inside. It's like login inside. And there's going to be an integration between the data coming out of network inside into log inside. So it'll be like a super so set of VR a bit of analytics behind it too. That'd be kind of interesting. Well, that'd be. I'd love to see a trend tr trend analysis to immediately call out like what's out of the norm. So if it knows these flows are normal, then well, that's what AI and ML, so you know, artificial right. intelligence slash machine learning. If you can strap that on, but the problem with as I'm learning, as I read and study, and you know, white papers and talk to vendors is machine learning requires vast amounts of compute. So you look at tetration, right? So Cisco's tetration. Like a whole rack, right? Build a, data center, build a data center to modern More than a rack. Data center, yeah. 35 RUs, $3 million, 35 kilowatts. But, you know, for a machine learning rig, not so bad, right? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, if you're going to put down a Hadoop or a, a machine learning type of setup, you're going to need 10, 20, 30 you know, servers to ingest that data and do the analysis. And it's going to burn a lot because there's a lot of data coming out of the network. If you're analyzing flows, you're going to need to be... <laughs> well, I guess it all depends on why you're analyzing flows and what you're mm. trying to achieve with it. Because, yeah. like, uh, operationally, my, my team found early on with NSX, we had the we had a default deny mode mm. where nothing worked yeah. except ping, which is a very much a uh, <laughs> careful thing. So when you let ping work but nothing else, well, your primary troubleshooting tool is gone, right? <laughs> um, everything looks good. Yeah. But, uh, I can ping it. <laughs> well, we ended up in all our policies, we put an explicit deny at the end, which which was great, because every time you were onboarding an application, you could go to the VM that wasn't working, and you could see exactly who it was trying to reach out to. We had this great string of connected environments where like one policy governed however many instances of the application you had. So all you had to do was go to the first one, fix it operationally, and then it was fixed for all of them. So normally, you know, you deploy ten environments for an application that's being developed. You're having to manage multiple copies of that policy and version control it or whatever. But we did it once, and then you know we go along to put the second environment in, and uh, the systems engineering is like, okay, let's model the firewall again. I'm like, you don't understand, we're done. Hmm. Like, oh, so that's what NSX does. Like, yes, like yeah. one policy, multiple governance. That that was huge. So yeah. there was definitely a change there. So that distributed firewall thing's working for you. It worked fairly well. It was, it's a little bit, well, we were early on, we were 6.0 and then 6.1, so initially debugging distributed firewall was a little rough. Yeah. Uh, I think 6.2 they added some more bits, some more visibility, but uh, all I'll tell people is log everything. Yeah. You'll be able to you'll, you'll be able to wield it. If you do a lot of silent stuff, you're, you're in for a little bit of hurt because you won't see what's being dropped. Yeah, I think, well, you know, you've got to remember too, we're only a few years into this transition. Like today's networking is 20 years in. So there's a lot of maturity in the legacy stuff. And it is legacy, right? Let's not miss it. It's legacy, right? But the things that are in the legacy now have taken a long time. So, but these software-defined overlays are really the future. I'm convinced that it's going to be, everything's going to be. And it doesn't matter to me whether you're in the campus, whether you're in the WAN, whether you're in the data center or in the internet. It's going to be some sort of software-defined overlay, right? Because even in the internet, you're going to be running TLS, HTTPS over whatever, or IPSEC over. Or in the WAN, it's going to be software-defined WAN with appliances. Or in the data center, it's going to be overlays like NSX and, you know, PlumGrid and, you know, NewArch and all those types of people. The question isn't, when is a software-defined overlay is going to take over? That's already done. We're finished. The question is, when are you going to deploy it? So what do you think of, like, you know, 
approaches of distributed state management and policy management like Calico that's not really an overlay but I think Calico is is a really dumb idea right <laughs> so first of all when you talk to the Calico people they go it's got PGP in it therefore it is awesome right and it's like <laughs> no I don't actually care whether you're running BGP or RabbitMQ or, you know, Mystic Fairy Princesses who are running around handing out packets at light speed, right? But uh, the, the idea that you're using BGP as a message bus just sounds fundamentally wrong to me. Like, BGP is not built to distribute state. It's designed to distribute state at internet speed. That means half an hour to an hour. Maybe. I mean, I think in like a data center these days, though, like it can converge a lot quicker than that and, and yeah. does on a regular basis, right? Sure. So, and it's pretty, pretty but solid. Can, but you can also use things like, uh, like what Facebook's talking about with OpenR, and they're doing Hadoop and Apache Spark and Zero MQ, right? Sure. And you don't need any of this BGP rubbish. Because, I mean, and that's how they look at it. Is as a really, that's the way we used to do it, but that's not what we need in the future. What we actually need is a message bus that passes messages between devices that, that I can control programmatically. BGP has no programmatic control and never will have. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. I've got, so when I, put a route into, when I put a route entry into BGP and it propagates, where's your data to say that message left? There's no, you don't have like when you but when you put a message onto a RabbitMQ message bus, what do you get? Yeah, sure. You, you get you, queuing, you get visibility, you get statistics, you get analytics. If you're using zero MQ, which is even better than RabbitMQ in my opinion, right? You've got a full-on streamlined 20 years of development, really, really fast message passing between systems. I don't even you, why would you bother using ISIS or OSPF or BGP? Those protocols were designed in an era when there was no CPU, no memory, and no bandwidth. And yet, what do we have in our data centers today? Interoperable, fundamentally, right? Yeah, so yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the biggest thing. I, I don't actually, but in the data center, I don't actually care about interoperable because it's a closed system. Is it though? I mean, yeah, like in is. most data centers, it's not. People in data centers right, aren't okay. buying Junipers and Cisco's and Brocades and white boxes and they're mixing them all together because it's only 5, 10, 20, 30, 50 switches. It's just easier to push all the old stuff out the door and buy new stuff. Or take a pod-based approach and say, I've got one network here that's my OpenStack and one network's at my legacy stuff and it's running you know, VMware, it's a chassis, it's my Nexus 7000 that I bought 10 years ago and I'm not getting rid of it because it's still got 10 years before it depreciates. We actually see that a lot. I mean, we see yeah. it with we see it with vSAN, we see it with OpenStack. They were like, we don't know if our apps are even going to run an OpenStack, and they're not going to run it on top of what they have. They they buy all new kit, they stand it off to the side. In and a they rack over here, here's a new, yeah. and it's like a little mini data center inside your data center. Yeah. So, so I don't accept that, right? I don't need BGP to be across my data center. I don't actually need standards across my data center. I just need something that works with inside of the subsystem that I'm working on. Okay. That's balance. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of the container systems out there, um, they, they have that same design where they're just a complete mesh or a complete like voodoo box on the inside and they have like an external facing VLAN and that's it. There's nothing. They, 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 so I'll play a little bit of ignorance here because we are having beer. So so something like Calico where, where you have so many containers and the density is so much greater, like how is a network supposed to hold that state? Like isn't that where overlays really yeah. come into play? Yeah. yeah. I mean with Project Calico you have fundamental you have fundamental problems with uh, BGP with TCAMs. Yeah. Right? So TCAMs can only a lot of switches that are in the market today can only update the TCAMs at around about hundreds of entries per second, right? Or even less, tens of entries, because a lot of TCAMs inside of the switches are actually running on 9,600 board serial lines, you know, or literally, right? They, they, or, not, or maybe 56 or 100 and, you know, 20, you know, whatever it is, 112K or whatever. Uh, the, uh, you can't add and delete containers at scale on those switches because they die. So everything about Project Calico to me goes, yeah, sure, it works at playtime, but when you step up to the big time, it's going to collapse in a big stinking bar. Yeah, and, and I guess that's kind of my point. I mean, what we're seeing is a push towards density. It's Everything is trying to get denser, and if, if the push is towards density, the network can't maintain. This is just me. I mean, not my employer or anything. Yeah. I just don't know how the network can continue to maintain to hold that well, state. No, see, now here's this. So, okay, I'm going to take umbrage at that, right? Density in the average enterprise isn't an issue because if an enterprise has 1,500 or 2,000 VMs, that's a big enterprise. 
right? So no, density isn't an issue. What is an issue is the f speed at which you can change the hardware in a network switch. And most network switches cannot be updated at speed. The TCAMs are functionally not designed with an Ethernet interface. They have a serial, and like a, an RS-232 line into the TCAM to update the TCAMs. And you'll find that if you start making vast numbers of TCAM changes... Well, I mean, that was a problem with OpenFlow, but I, I mean, right, that was the, one of the fundamental problems with OpenFlow is from... Yeah. So you, want, you don't want to be futzing with the hardware, in my opinion. That's where, why I, I tend to focus more towards NSX, because it just doesn't... It does everything above the hardware. Right? So you're not, you're not pushing TCAM entries into the hardware switch. You're not adding and deleting routes and waiting for the BGB code to have a memory leak and fail. Right? I just, that whole idea of relying on the underlying switch, if you don't have to, because you can't fix the underlying switch because there's so many dependencies. If you have to go and upgrade the VTEP gateway or the, the spine switches because you're futzing the TCAM or something like that, you've got a massive problem. You should just be able to... You know, it does obviously depend on your rate of change of like how many you know containers are spinning up at once or changing that kind of thing, right? Like, yeah, that's that's your fundamental limitation there. But it's but un undebuggable. Yeah. Right. If you're not getting enough entries in and out of the TCAM, you have no way of getting visibility into that because those most of the time at that level, there's no syslog entries. No. There's no debugging code. I mean, no. I mean, like most people don't even know what's going on there, right? Like, no. you know, trying to insert a rule in the middle of an ACL stack, that kind of thing. Like, if you were to do, like, I don't know, calico on the switches, kind of thing, to yeah. insert, you know, rules there. Like, yeah, there's fundamental limitations around that. Yeah. I mean, um, and this is where. Um, open Contrail is very popular for a similar reason, right? And again, similar sorts of problems. It's doing BGP peering with the with the gateway routers, right? And you, you look at where some of these solutions came from, right? Like, obviously, Contrail and that kind of thing being a Juniper thing. Yeah. So, obviously, they're pretty strong in, you know, routing yeah. protocol stacks. So oh, hey, I can use BGP as a message bus. Everything looks like I've an MPLS got one problem, of those. right? I'll reuse yeah. that <laughs> rather than develop something else. Uh, but I'm not sure that... You know, that that's a viable long-term strategy. NSX has been successful by saying, start from the basic, start from the bottom up. I don't, I don't know that I, I necessarily agree that stretched L2 fabrics, are or tunneled stretched L2 fabrics are the fundamental solution to the problem either, though, right? Like, there's got to be some sort of middle ground there. It's interesting to me that they throw that out there, like the cross vCenter NSX and the stretched L2. My team wholly rejected that. So when we were wanting to deploy a single application into multiple data centers, we just said, hey, okay, if the environment is dev1, just create another dev1 VXLAN on the other side. They're one, they might be different subnets, but they're still one contiguous thing. And it's interesting sometimes, in the, like even in the marketing materials, they talk about micro-segmentation. Yeah. All the little pictures they draw show micro-segmenting by creating subnets. And it, no, it's, you can group the objects. You, mm -hmm. you shouldn't care what the IP of the box is. Yeah. And I, I had a lot of trouble, like even internally, just breaking the team and saying, well, how do we do this? Because yeah. how do you extend an Network. Well, just add another one. Who cares? Yeah, we have a customer who's running thousands of thousands of apps on like four VLANs within a IP addresses are free. Right? They don't cost you any money. And you think like, right? you know, what is you know, what does an IP address usually mean and what's the what's the reason for it? And it's usually to apply some sort of security policy to it and a bunch of other stuff, right? It's a, it's an identity kind of thing. And if your whole system is based on, you know, a container or a VM ID or a GUID or something like that, what what does it matter whether that underlying IP address changes? You've got the same state information or you've got the same ownership information to apply that state to. So yeah, your VM move or your VM container or whatever moves from one data center to another, it's called the same underlying you know, subnet, but it happens to get a different DHCP address when it moves. Who gives a shit? You know? <laughs> My team only, we only hung on to subnets and CIDR blocks to signal to upstream devices that needed to trust us for whatever reason. Hmm. So if the production environment is this CIDR block, then okay, the Palo Alto will trust that, right? So yeah. it's an upstream device, not an NSX purview. Well, the only thing it had to go on was some kind of object. We wanted to go after that programmatically too, though. So what do you do for security in that environment? Do you do a, you handle it yourself? So you're no longer trusting firewalls to do your security. So you must do what scanning or inherent 
you do the firewalling in the NSX at a, at a basic level. Well, that environment, yeah, it was all distributed firewall mm. and just modeled policies and attachment. And the idea was anything that was going towards the egress, toward the internet, uh, those, you know, hopefully we'd steer those to um, something that was like using the Palo Alto integration to dive into layer seven. Yeah. So that, you know, the edge kind of deflected everything coming in. And then if something, you know, is sensitive data, PCI, something like that, yeah. scan it internally. So how never like, got that far, though. So you didn't get that far. So you didn't like, you're not like stripping credit card information out of the you know, outgoing packets dynamically or anything? Uh, no. And, and we even got to the point where we were like, okay, well, we got our platform so far, but we need to talk to the guys designing our applications and like tell them what our platform is capable of because maybe they want to take a totally different approach to the way they're handling data or something like mm. that. So it was it, a lot of our apps were, I don't know, trying to go um, you know, broken out into multiple tiers. I mean, one of the primary apps was like 100 tiers, which mm. made it real interesting when you look at like the marketing documentation. They're like, oh, your simple three-tiered app. And I'm like, well, how about a 50-tiered app? <laughs> and they're like, oh. So let me ask you a question. You, we were talking last night at the at the bar about um, intent-driven networking. That sort of, you don't actually care how VLANs are created. You just say this this group of servers need to be grouped together in some way. But you're pretty interested in the sort of like the this idea of intent-driven operating systems that sit above the network. Yeah, well, when the team was looking at the whole stack, right, um, uh, one of my engineers, a guy named Daniel, he was very insistent that, hey, if you're going to go compose all this infrastructure for NSX and then have some kind of uh, automation platform come along and consume it, if we didn't have some common space to document, like, one, what it should look like, two, how fast to change it, like, all these things. So we basically broke out all the functions of delivering an NSX VXLAN and getting it to talk to something, broke that down to functions and modules that we could call, and then stitch that into like one orchestrative effort with templates to say, how do we want to do this? So we made all our business units, and we likened a business unit to an application. We needed them to look alike, and but we needed to configure them fast and in patterns. And we needed to do that because the guys, on my, I was on the mostly on the other side of the table. I was the automation trying to guide, build servers, and I needed to know, like, how do I home to the networks that I need? And... I, I need to not care about the orchestration of the of the overlay. So so one half was doing the orchestration of the overlay, and then the other half was trying to consume it. And we were using virtual machines, but I could easily see the same problem having to come up with like a container world where mm. you need to know how it's going to function, and you need to be able to reliably change it. Yeah. And I gave you the example uh, last night of when when uh, when we raced upon it, and you know the first time I went through, you know, 30 minutes, uh, I knocked out one, but then we come back and my buddy knocks out, you know, 50 whole business units each with 10 environments in under six minutes. It's like, all right, uh, I lose. Like, <laughs> like no, no amount of, you know, checking. And you know what I am seeing is a lot of a lot of customers now who are coming to me and asking about it is like, um, they'll say, well, where do I get started? I want to do infrastructure as code. I want to do this. And my first question is, is, where are you doing IPAM? And uh, 99 out of 100 times, it's, Google Docs or Excel? And I'm like, all right, well, you need a source of truth. And yeah. if you don't have one, you, how, and for how are you going to source of truth anything? is always the DNS, the name to IP mesh. Yep. Yeah. And most people are using Windows DNS, which is less than excellent. And, and it's obvious that the, the container guys figured this out very quickly. And you yeah. see how, how fast name registration and service registration are like integral parts of yeah, clustering containers and keeping applications online. So or running microservices. It's like the it's like the glue. Yeah. Uh, DNS, DNS. Well they have to because the IP address is ephemeral. Exactly. And the MAC address. So, you know, that's just to be clear that, yeah. you know, the MAC address for a container might last for 15 seconds. Yep. And the IP address that goes with it. And that's another problem with legacy switches is they often can't take a high rate of churn in the B cam. So if you add and delete back addresses, it causes problems in the binary cam. But, uh, yeah, so, you, but yeah, you're right. In containers, you have to have, you're talking to the name, not the pets versus cattle. Yeah. Remember the pet, pet, that story we used to tell like a couple of years ago about pets versus cattle? Now there's chickens. Yeah. Containers, yeah. <laughs> Containers are chickens. Containers are chickens, yeah. They last about six months before you eat Yeah, there's a lot more of them. Yeah. A lot smaller. And you eat it and you cull them quicker. <laughs> <Yeah. That's right. laughs> 
Well, guys, I think that's just about enough for today. Let's go around the table and uh, tell people where they can find you on the internet. Start with you, Tommy. Uh, I'm on Twitter, TWM1010. Um, uh, we have some open source projects. Vicaro was one of them. Uh, you can check that out. That was uh, application delivery. So. DJ Spry. Uh, handle it. Twitter. DJ Spry at Twitter. Thank you. Uh, yeah, um, Doug Yude uh, on Twitter, you know, everything else. Uh, Snidus uh, on Twitter, so C-N-I-D-U-S. Yeah. Why? Huh? Why? Uh, I've always wanted to know what Snidus is. It's a, lo- it's a longer story for more beers, but uh, I got a second-hand computer, like yeah. it was my first computer, um, from a university, and they named their uh, computers after Greek you know, cities and yeah. mytho- mythological characters and whatnot, so that's what it was. It had like a you know, you know, handwritten sticker on the front of it saying Snidus, so that's what my IRC handle like defaulted to. So that's, so that's just what you stuck with that? Stuck with it. Okay. And of course, I'm Greg Farrow. You can find me on the Twitter at Ethereal Mind and on the blog as ethereumind.com and on the packet pushes. You can find this and many more fine free podcasts and uh, our technical blog at packetpushes.net. Thanks very much for listening. This has been Engineers in a Bar. I'm going to drink more beer and uh, see you again soon. Thanks.